take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And as you notice, we read the same passage we read last week. Um, just about every week, my wife asks what I'm going to preach on. I usually snidely give her the text and not much else. <laughs> last night she asked, and I said, I'm going to preach on Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. She said, again? And I can understand that. I want to particularly focus today on verses 3 through 6 in the context of verses 1 through 7. A great promise had been made to Abraham and to his family. And you're going to need to put a marker or something in Ephesians 3. You'll think we forgot Ephesians 3 in this introduction. We're going to flip a little. We're going to look at a history here. Because I think it better sets us up to understand the dynamics of this passage. What it, how, and you may have left yet last week thinking that, that's good, but how does that, what's so revolutionary about that? And so hopefully this, this message will help understand what's so revolutionary to Paul's audience as they hear him, uh, in this letter telling them, uh, this mystery. But a great promise had been made to Abraham and to his family. If you hold your place in Ephesians, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, a very famous passage. A truly a revolutionary passage, one that changes the course of human history. Genesis 12, 1-3. You have to understand, the Bible is written under a binary covenant, a binary covenant form, outline. There's a great covenant which God made with Himself. In the Trinity. It established the plan for all of mankind and for all of the world. This covenant was made prior to the creation. It was made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because a covenant is a relationship established by God through His Word, which brings both blessing and curse. And the original covenant, the covenant of redemption, that is the overarching covenant that under which all of history plays out, holds to that definition. It is a established relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is established by the Word of God. And it has both a blessing and a curse. That's the simplest form of covenant. And it's there in the Trinity. It's inter-Trinitarian, this covenant. But out from under it, we have a binary structure, a two-covenant structure. And that's very important for you to understand, for me to grasp, so we can understand the Bible. I hear people say things like, I read my, I read, I read my Bible all the time, I just don't get it. Largely because you don't understand the Bible being dealt through covenant language. Covenant language is not second nature to me or you in our society. 
So it's very difficult. We read things that make sense. There's these two covenants. The first, the covenant of works. The second, the covenant of grace. The covenant of works is established between God and Adam. Through Adam, the representative of all mankind, it is a, is a relationship established between God and man. It's spoken of directly. Only one place in the Bible is it called a covenant. And that's in Hosea 6, verse 1. When it says, Israel, like Adam, disobeyed the covenant. And you, and you say, what covenant? Because if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you don't find the word covenant. I have a reason for that. Uh, I think that makes most sense. And that is that Moses is respecting the history of the development of mankind. There was no need to use the word covenant in Genesis 1 and 2 because there was no such word in the human concept in the garden. Though the covenant is there, they wouldn't have expressed it. Adam wouldn't have said, I'm in a covenant. He didn't understand all that language. That language develops in time. So I don't think Moses superimposes the word covenant artificially on the passage. But if, if we had time, if you'd stay with me till about 2 o'clock, I think when we left, you'd say Genesis 1 and 2 is clear. Have you ever read the account, Genesis 1 and 2? You ever read it? Did it ever strike you that they don't sound exactly the same? You read the creation account, Genesis chapter 1. You get to, to the end, you say, well, that's great. You start Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And you say, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like Genesis chapter 1. We've got two creation accounts. Did God do it two different ways? Do we have a contradiction? Is Moses such a terrible writer that he presents the same facts two different ways and contradicts himself on the same page? Is he crazy? No. What we have in Genesis chapter 1 is a, is a more detailed, a more outlined form of what took place. And what we have from 128, verse 27, 127, through the end of chapter 2, is the, dispel, the dispelling of this covenant of works. You see, the special relationship which God has with man that He does not have with any other of His creation. You are not a higher form of an animal, God says. You are a different kind than animals. You are after my likeness. And He has a relationship very special and unique with humans. And He establishes that covenant, the covenant of works. And immediately we find in Genesis 3 that that covenant is broken by Adam. It's broken by Adam. There was blessing and there was cursing. And Adam incurred the curse because he broke the covenant. He disobeyed God. He ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he had been commanded not to do. And so we have this one great covenant, and it calls for death. Adam should die immediately. And what we see instead is the introduction of that second great covenant, the covenant of grace. God immediately enacts the curse on Adam. He died spiritually. He was cut off. The Bible expresses that clearly by saying they were naked and they were ashamed of their nakedness. That is a curse. There was no shame prior to sin. There was no shame. 
was a perfect community, sinless community with God and man. What a beautiful thing. One day we'll taste that again, but it's gone for now. And the covenant is broken. And all of this sin is a problem, isn't it? Karl Barth makes a mistake. Many make a mistake. They think our finiteness, the fact that we're finite, is the problem the Bible addresses. And they see the Bible as under one monolithic covenant, the covenant of grace. So everything God does, He does through grace towards mankind. They're wrong. Prior to sin, God was not acting under the covenant of grace. Rather, He was dealing with man under the covenant of works. Don't hear in covenant of works that we were supposed to do a bunch of stuff. That's that's not what it was about. The covenant of works was established between us and God as a relationship. Not as do-isms, but as a relationship. And there was no need for grace because there was no sin. And there was no need for a mediator in that original covenant because there was no sin. And the covenant of works was enacted and Adam failed and God gave him the curse. He died spiritually, but physically he lives. Why? Because God introduces the covenant of grace. In Genesis 3, we read it at the end after handing out the curses, making the promise in Genesis 15 of the seed of Eve which would crush the head of Satan. He then kills an animal and he clothes them in his skin saying, I will substitute for you. Blood must be shed, but it won't be your blood. It will be another's blood. And we have the covenant of grace. And from that point, God has acted with man under the covenant of grace. And it has been distilled to us in different times, in different ways. And what we come to in Genesis 12 is the first of these different ways. And it is the covenant which he has with Abraham. So watershed in the Bible. If you want to divide the Bible, other than Old and New Testament, you should go Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 12 through the crucifixion, and at the crucifixion to Revelation. That That's how the Bible really divides. And underneath this Genesis 12 through the crucifixion, we have a couple of things that are going to stand out. If we went through the whole history, we won't. I could. I love it. But you, you'll go to sleep. And there's this great enacting, acting out the covenant of grace between Genesis 12 and the crucifixion. And it's mediated to us through different mediators who are standing as types of Christ in our Bible. And Christ is the pinnacle. Christ is the point. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, that's his name, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a beautiful promise. This is a beautiful promise. This is a gospel promise. God preached the gospel, the good news to Abram. And he starts preaching it to him in Genesis 12. We've got to know who Abram is. Abram is a Gentile. He's Semitic. He's, Semitic. he's Hebrew. There's no such thing as Jew. 
He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. He doesn't bear in his flesh the mark of the covenant yet. God makes a promise to him that fordates any of that. And that promise is to him and to his children. It's very beautiful. And it's further delved out to us in Genesis 15. We won't read all of it, but you can flip over a page. Genesis 15. The great account of God cutting a covenant. The word berit here. Covenant. To cut. He made, he further establishes the relationship he prior established in Genesis 12 by cutting a new, cutting a covenant. And he makes a promise to him. And it's an astounding promise. It's an astounding promise because he's an old man. He promises him a son. An offspring. So Genesis 15, the covenant takes sharper form. Genesis 17 comes. And it takes yet another sharp form. It's becoming more precise, more narrow. In Genesis 17, we find God saying to Abraham in verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Not just a father, but a father of many nations. Now this is to an old man. Verse 1 tells us he's 99 years old. Even in his day, this is old for bearing children. His wife is near 90. And God's saying, I'm going to give you great nations, Abraham, through you. Great nations are coming. And he doesn't even have a a legitimate son in his house. It's an astounding promise. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I, God, will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. So in Genesis 12, he calls him. In Genesis 15, he refines that by saying, I've called you and I'm giving you a son. In Genesis 17, he says, I'm giving you a son and a land. These are all parts of the same covenant. This relationship God has established by his word with Abraham. And so Abraham asked God, how can I know that this covenant is true, that it's in act? And God gives him a sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. All the males in his house are to be circumcised. And so now we have a promise, we have a son, we have a land, we have a sign of the covenant. So all of this has been given right here in Genesis at the beginning. Genesis 22 gives us a sharper focus on this same agreement, this same relationship that God has established with Abraham. Look at Genesis 22. God calls him after he has this son of his old age. God calls Abraham to kill the boy as a sacrifice. To go on the mountain and offer him. 
to slit his throat and to burn him as a burnt offering before the Lord. Abraham's whole life is wrapped up in this boy. So it would seem from the outside. But his life is not wrapped up in the boy. We see in Genesis 22, his life is wrapped up in God's word, his promise. How do we see it? Abraham takes his boy and his servants. He takes a donkey, he takes wood, he takes his knife, he takes a flame. They come to the foot of the mount and he looks at his servants and says, I and the boy are going on the mountain and we're going to make a sacrifice. And this boy and I are going to come back to you. Hebrews tells us Abraham's life was not wrapped up in a boy. Abraham's promised covenant relationship with God was what his life was wrapped up in. Not Isaac, but in the promise of the covenant. Abraham, it's revealed to us in Scripture, saw more than Isaac. He saw Christ. He loved Isaac. It was his son, but he loved Christ. As best we understand it, as best we can see, he believed, as Hebrews tells us, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He believed fully he was going to kill his son, and he believed God was going to raise him from the dead. And Hebrews says, by faith he did receive his son back from the dead. His life was not wrapped up in a boy. His life was wrapped up in Christ. The promise of God. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord. We can debate this, but this is a pre-incarnate Christ. I believe. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, you've not wrapped your life up in your son, you have offered him your only son, I will surely bless you. Now we see the covenant relationship God established is not about Isaac, it's about something greater than Isaac. And God's telling him that. You didn't wrap up your life in Isaac, you wrapped up your life in my promise. And so because you have done that, and have not withheld your son, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Strange in the Hebrew, the way that's connected. He's talking about multiplying to Abraham all these descendants. And then he says that his offspring, singular, will possess the gates of his enemies. Who, what, what, who? What enemy? Well, Genesis 15's enemy. The promise he made to Eve. One will come from you that will crush the head of Satan. Now to Abraham he says, one will come from you, an offspring will come from you, and he will possess the gates of his enemies. He, not them, but he will defeat the enemy. And in your offspring, in your offspring, this same singular offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. 
It's a beautiful promise that we have here in Genesis 12, 15, 17, sharpened for us, refined for us, made obvious for us in Genesis 22, 15 through 18. God's talking about more than Isaac. He's talking about more than heritage and genealogy. He's talking about His Word. He's talking about a promise that is established by His Word. And that promise is to bless all the nations through the offspring, the one offspring of Abraham, who will possess the gates of his enemies. As we continue through the Old Testament, a thread of redemptive promise continues to develop and sharpen through the days of Moses and Joshua and the Judges and Samuel and David and finally the great prophets of Israel like Isaiah and Jeremiah where this covenant becomes even clearer and clearer. But as we look at the Jewish interpretation of the promise given to Abraham, it becomes obvious that they did not fully understand the impact of the promise. They didn't understand the extent of the promise. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to John chapter 8. This is the Jewish interpretation in Jesus' day and in our day of the promises we have just read. Jesus says in John 8 that He is the light of the world. He's at the Feast of the Tabernacles. He's at Jerusalem. He's at the temple. And in verse 31, Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here's the Jewish interpretation of the promise to their father Abraham. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet, he's talking about genetics. They're genetically offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. They didn't love God's word the way their father Abraham did. They did not heed God's voice the way their father Abraham did. They focused on genetics. They got focused on Isaac. They got focused on the twelve patriarchs and the prophets. And they said, we're the blessed people of God. We're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, be careful. I know you're genetically descended from Abraham, but you have not heeded my word. You've not listened to me. And listen to what he goes further to say. You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. In the next section, he says, your father is Satan. The Jewish interpretation is blasphemous. Why? Because it focuses on genetics and not the Word of God. And we see it clearly. It keeps going. If you were Abraham's children, he said, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. He's referencing Genesis 22. That's what he's talking about. You are doing the works of your father. We're not born of sexual immorality. 
By the way, they're throwing a barb at Jesus. They think Jesus is born of sexual immorality because Mary and Joseph are not married when Jesus is born. Even we have one father, even God. Now they claim God is their father. They're banking on genealogy to get them into heaven. This is the Jewish interpretation of all the great promises of God in Genesis all the way through Malachi. It's all about who we are. We're Israel. We're the promised ones. And Jesus says, be careful. You people who think you're promised are sons of Satan because you don't believe in me and my word. Look at what he says. If God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but God sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. We're going to see what they couldn't bear. You cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you will, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. When was he a murderer? In the garden. He sought to kill Adam and Eve. From the beginning. He sought to kill Abel by the hand of his brother Cain. He was a murderer from the very beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe in me? Which of you convicts me of sin? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You have genetics, you're the sons genetically of Abraham, but you are not children of Abraham. That's what Jesus just told them. You're children of Satan. Jesus is drawing a very controversial distinction. The Jews answered, are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Now they reveal themselves. I do not have a demon. I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will not taste death. Genetics, not the word of God again. They're getting it all messed up. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say to you that I did not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him and I keep His Word. Word, not genetics. There it is again. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham was not holding on to genetics or a nation or a promise of some nation. He was holding on to Christ. And he brought him great joy. So the Jews said, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And he says, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And I would argue that needs to be capitalized. I am. I am. He just said, I'm Yahweh. I'm Jehovah. I'm the covenant God. I'm the one who promised Abraham the covenant. So they picked up stones to throw it at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They were wanting to throw the stones at him for two reasons. One, they charged him with blasphemy. But two, and very close to that, he attacked their genealogy. He told them Jewishness 
does not matter. And they wanted to kill him. Now, what proof do I have that's what they wanted to kill him about? I made that contention last week. I know some of you struggled with that contention. I understand that. But the fact is, as we read their interpretation of the Old Testament, we find a very Israel-centered hermeneutic. And Jesus has a very Christ-centered hermeneutic. Very Christ-centered interpretation. Not Israel, Christ. And today, we have a lot of people who get confused around the mystery that's revealed by the apostles and it's continued through the prophet's ministry. It's the mystery which we began to look at last week. And I want to say it again. This is the mystery. It is that in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are united equally into one body, the church, forevermore. They're made one people of God. It was the, this mystery that caused the majority of the conflict. We just read the conflict between Jesus and the Jews. But that conflict continues. Turn to Acts, the historical book, recording for us the development of the way of Christianity, of the people who follow in the line of Abraham. Acts chapter 2. There had been a great promise made to God's people in Joel 2, 28 through 32. And that promise was that in the last days, the Spirit of God would fall on all flesh and they would prophesy in His name. We come to Pentecost, Jesus pours the Spirit out on the Christians, the the apostles and those gathered in the upper room, and they begin to speak with fiery tongue. And the people hear them, and they're confused. They think they're drunk. And Peter rises to defend and says, listen, they're not drunk. It's just the third hour of the day. They're not drunk. They're filled with the Spirit. They've received the promise that was made to Joel, our great prophet, our forefather. And that promise was that the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh. And he says that is fulfilled in your presence this very day. And it's fulfilled because of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Not because they're Jews, but because of Jesus. And he ends this great sermon in verse 32 by saying, This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, one of the most quoted, it is the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Christ both, Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter preaches this Christ-centered interpretation of the Old Testament. And the response? Thousands are saved. Thousands are gathered in. But it's not all. That's not all we see in Acts. If you flip over, there's a lot of things we can look at again, but we skipped to Acts 10. Peter and the church are, Peter and the apostles are spreading the word of God, the word of Christ throughout the region and thousands and thousands are being saved, converting from their genealogy to the promise of the word of God. They're coming in through Christ. They understand now the fulfillment of the old covenant in Christ and the beginning of the new covenant. They see it and they're coming to Him. They're believing in Him. 
And they're being killed. They're being persecuted. They're being stoned. They're being imprisoned. And then, after Saul is converted in Acts 9, something interesting happens. Acts 10, we find Peter. Peter, the great Jew, had a vision of a blanket containing all these clean and unclean animals. And God drifts the blanket down and says, Peter, take and eat. Oh, no, Lord, not me. I have never eaten of unclean meat. God says something very key. Verse 15. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. So Peter was perplexed by the vision. He didn't understand it. But some men from Cornelius' house show up. And they take Simon back to Cornelius' house because he had been commanded to go there. And look what it says in verse 22. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by all the angels to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Now Peter stays in this Gentile house, which is way out of the norm for a Jewish man who believed in his uprightness. Way out of the norm. But he stays. And he goes down and he sees that the people are longing to hear the gospel, the good news. And he preaches to them. And look what he says in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did. Jesus did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people. And testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Everyone. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. What are they amazed about? Because the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Not genealogy. Promise. Jesus said it. And these Gentiles have heard the promise. And they have believed and God has blessed them with His Holy Spirit. He has saved them in the presence of an upright and righteous Jew. He then declares to them, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? What? Just as we have. Just as the Jews received it, now the Gentiles have received it. The mystery is that the Jews and the Gentiles are brought into one body, one citizenship, under Christ for all of eternity. And it's right here in the history of the development of the church. Acts 11. Peter has the report about this. You have to report about things that change thousands of years of understanding. 
You have to make a report of defense. And so he does. Peter goes into the council and he says, listen, I had this vision. There were all these animals. There were animals of beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, no, I've never eaten uncommon, unclean. It's never been me, but the voice answered what God has made clean. Do not call common. Verse 10, this happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were. Sent from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them. Make no distinctions. Do you hear it? You Gentiles? You're sitting in this church today because God made no distinction between you and the Jews. He didn't make a distinction based on genealogy. He made a promise and He kept the promise in His Son, Jesus Christ. And now you and I are joined into the family of God with the Jews. And we're no longer Jew and we're no longer Gentile. We're on equal ground before Christ in His cross. We're one family. I have no claim on the promise of Abraham in my flesh. And neither does the Jew. He's of Satan if he claims it. But oh, if he's in Christ, and I'm in Christ, and we lock arms, we join hands, we give the holy kiss to one another, and we say, we are brothers indeed. That's what he just said. Look, he keeps going. I don't want you to be confused. He gives the full account. He comes down and he asks this question. If then God, verse 17, gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I mean, they're kind of charging Him. Why didn't you protect us? Why didn't you keep those stinking Gentiles out? Who am I to stand in the way of God? If He wants the Gentiles to be joint heirs with us, how will I stop Him? That's the question. Look what they say. They glorified God when they heard it. And this is their statement. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The most glorious words to us in all the Bible are, we are counted free by Christ and we are joint heirs. We are family members with Him in the family of God. This is the Gospel. There's no distinction in Christ. It goes on. Listen, I know I'm not even out of the introduction. I get it. We may be here a third week. But I can't leave it. You need to grasp this. You think, man, this guy's a fool. He's up there. He's all excited about all this stuff. Listen, hopefully the Spirit will bring it to you and reveal it to you and you'll say, wow, now I'm excited about this stuff. Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas go out to the Gentiles. They start seeing great moves of the Spirit. People are being saved. There's a problem. They're not circumcising anybody. And the Judaizers, the same as those other Jews that Jesus dealt with, are now saying, we believe in Jesus, but you've got to circumcise people. If you don't circumcise people, they're not part of us. We don't want uncircumcised, unclean, common people in our family. We're too good for that. I don't know who you think you are, Paul, but you can't undo Moses' law. You have no right. That's their claim. So Paul says, I'll meet you in Jerusalem. 
Let's go stand in front of the brothers. Let's go stand at the council. Let's sit and let the twelve judge. Let them judge us. Either I'm right or you're right. Either people are saved by Christ and Christ alone, or they're saved by Christ and the law. It's got to be one or the other. So let's go ask them. They're the experts. I submit to them. If they approve your gospel, I'm wrong. That's basically what he's saying. He's challenging them. And they travel. They go there. And they show up, Paul and Barnabas. And they take with them a great exhibit. And they make their charge against him. He's undoing the law of circumcision. And the apostles and the elders gather together. He, he, answers, he answers their questions. He says, verse 4, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, genealogists, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, talking about the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter, and after there, and after, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up, there's Peter again, the great Jew, and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We're talking about the law of Moses. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And all the assembly fell silent again. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After that, they finished speaking. James replied, James being a leader, a pillar, as Paul says in Galatians, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree. Just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Amos 9, 11-12 Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the, what has been strangled with blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So they write a letter and send it back saying, you don't have to circumcise them. Why do I read that to you? It's a watershed. It's the confirmation that the Gentiles and Jews are one. And it's given to us by the Jew of all Jews, Peter and James. They take a passage that for generation after generation have been interpreted that the Jews would come into Jerusalem, that they would build a temple, and that there would be a regathering of the Jews in that place in the Middle East. 
And the Gentile nations would then come. And they would come to Jerusalem, not as joint heirs on equal ground, but as servants to the Jews. If you read the interpretation of Amos through the Second Temple literature of the Jewish rabbis, you see it. The nation of Israel believed, oh, Gentiles are going to be saved, but they're going to be saved by becoming Jews. And James says, no. They're not going to be saved by being Jews. They're going to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of the Lord. And not only are they going to be saved, but they're going to be the rebuilding of the tent that has fallen down. The Gentiles and the Jews being joined is the temple. This is why it's revolutionary. Because for thousands of years, the racists among the Jewish nation had taught a non-gospel. They had differentiated and distinguished between them and the rest of the world in an ungodly and unhealthy way. And they had taught their children this bigotry. And Jesus came and said, the truth will set you free of the sin that you're enslaved to, this bigotry that you hold so dear to your heart. I'm not saving Jews and Gentiles. I'm saving men from every nation and tribe and tongue, and I'm making myself a nation. And it's the church. Now, Ephesians. Quickly, one word about Ephesians, and then we'll come back to it next week. Ephesians chapter 3 puts us in the dead middle of Paul's, one of Paul's, one of Paul's arguments for what I've just taught you. I have one point, I want to make it, and then we'll support it next week. My one point to you is this, we are equal in Christ to the Jews as members of God's family. We are. And I say it humbly and broken. Because I don't deserve it. Because not only am I a sinner in violation of the covenant of works, but I'm not a Jew. I have no genealogy. And yet God brings together and fulfills the covenant of works in His Son and the covenant of, of Abraham in His Son. The covenant of grace in His Son. And now we are joint heirs with Him. So I'm in the loins of Christ in the Holy of Holies this morning before my God as His Son, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That is beyond belief. That is amazing grace. Paul earlier mentioned the mystery in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1. He says, God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is a mystery that He would unite all things in Christ. Now we have in Genesis, I mean Ephesians 3, the fuller, the sharper, the more narrow view of this mystery. The mystery is, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. Genesis 12. 
the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, it's my job to support that next week. Not all this week. Closing. Application. I don't know. It's, to me, I hate to say common sense. It's, to me, the sense of the Bible, though. The application is singular today. You should rejoice because you have longed to see the day of Christ and you've seen it. Your rejoicing is the rejoicing of Abraham. You have been grafted into Christ. You've been made one. You need to rejoice daily because you have seen Christ. That's it. You should rise every morning with a new mercy saying and a new grace saying, I've been brought into the family of God. I'm an outcast. I'm a I'm I'm a poor man. I'm a rich man. I come from a divorced home. My wife's going to divorce me. I have cancer. The doctor says I got six months to live. Rejoice because you have seen the day of Christ. Just like your father Abraham. Take no glory in the flesh. Don't take glory in the fact that you attend church. Don't count yourself as some kind of favored one among the people of the earth. Though you are favored of God, expect trial and tribulation. Expect sickness. Expect loss of job. Expect even broken marriages. Expect all of these things. It's coming. If it hasn't come to you already, it's coming. But rejoice in Christ. And the root of the rejoicing is Christ, not in Ephesians, but in Genesis. Rejoice in the promise that God has made that He will bless you, and He will keep you, and He will make His face to shine upon you, and He will give you peace. Rejoice. Rejoice, church, because you've been set free. Rejoice, church, because you've been called out from among the nations. Rejoice because you have a common bond across these pews. Rejoice because you have other brothers and sisters in this community who have been brought to Christ. Rejoice because there are thousands and millions around the globe in different languages and different tongues and different cultures and different traditions that are not bragging about their genealogy, but they're holding out the Word of God and saying, I've seen the day of Christ and I rejoice. He's enough. Rejoice, church. Revel in it. It's yours by the purchased blood of Jesus Christ.